Hello, and welcome to Encounters, a podcast of the Center for the Study of Statesmanship at the Catholic University of America. I'm Matt Cantorino. On this episode, we'll be speaking with Andrew Gilmore, who is a retired 32-year veteran of the CIA. Andrew served as a senior intelligence expert on the Near East, South Asia, and Islam over his career in a range of positions. He was the principal drafter of three national intelligence estimates and is the recipient of the Distinguished Career Intelligence Medal. He is the author of the new book, A Middle East Primed for New Thinking, Insights and Policy Options from the Ancient World. We'll be joined also by Gil Barndoller, who is Senior Research Fellow here at CSS. Gil has written for numerous national and international publications, and from 2009 to 2016, served as an infantry officer in the United States Marine Corps. He deployed twice to Afghanistan, as well as to Guantanamo Bay and various other places. He holds a PhD in history from Cambridge, And at CSS, he's working on a book examining the future of America's all-volunteer force. So, Gil, lead us off. Thank you, Matt. Pleasure to be speaking with you today, Andrew. Can you tell us a little more about your career at the CIA, uh, your time in government, both at CIA, at the State Department, and and especially your time uh, focusing on the Middle East? Uh, Thank you uh, both, Matt, for the introduction, and Gil for working on these issues with me today. It's great to be here. I. I came into the CIA at the tail end of the Cold War in 1985 and I was able to to uh, experience several phases in U.S. foreign policy, uh, not only in the Middle East but globally. Uh, watched the end of that Cold War, uh, front seat of that, and also this decade of the 90s with some American primacy in the, in the corridors of power in Washington. Uh, and then, of course, uh, things began to, to change radically, and it really was a second phase of, of career for all of us um, after the end of the Cold War in the 90s when we had the, the 9-11 events and generally uh, the shift to a, a much more challenging and multipolar international environment for the United States. Um, so uh, the, the 32 years included significant changes in the analytic space that I was looking at, um, I was able to be at the State Department for part of that in the 90s. Uh, I also uh, schooled in uh, Persian language training uh, and uh, served uh, in Iraq um, in 2003. So this has been um, an exceptionally uh, diverse career for me and one that uh, saw uh, changes in focus and priorities for the intelligence community as well as the broader national security establishment. Andrew, could you speak a little bit more about your time in Baghdad? There's a great uh, anecdote in your book, which I'll get to in a moment, about your time with the CPA shortly after the U.S. invasion. Uh, can you talk about both that experience and about how your your background and your, your grounding in ancient history, uh, how that aided you or how that helped contextualize what you were seeing in Iraq in the early days of the U.S. occupation? Well, sure. I, I, I had responsibility for uh, writing sort of deep think pieces, if you will, from a, from, from a war zone. And uh, I will say that one of the great uh, benefits uh, for an analyst in Washington is to spend time uh, overseas. And in my case, in this uh, period uh, of Iraq, uh, it was very hard not to, as any analyst would feel uh, in this environment, it was very hard not to feel the uh, extraordinary pull of, of ancient uh, patterns and ancient precedents when you're literally uh, in uh, the land between the two rivers uh, in Baghdad. And 
the the kinds of thinking that that um, you have as somebody in such a war zone at such a pivotal moment uh, tend to go beyond the the analytic frameworks and standard uh, ways of thinking um, that you're schooled in in the United States and that you're practicing in the policy environment. The reason this happens is because you see around you firsthand that there are limits to how uh, models of analysis, political science, leadership, security, economics, all important and useful and powerful analytic tools somehow are insufficient in um, a war environment where literally a society is um, coming apart. And when such events happen, you've got to push beyond your analytic frame and you have to look at indigenous frameworks, indigenous ways of thinking. Uh, and I think the ancient patterns and precedents that uh, Baghdad, as an example, evokes um, were terribly useful in beginning to think about in a period of upheaval and transition, what sort of identities, what kind of geographic space, what kind of competitions, what kind of uh, political identities were all in play. And the patterns and precedents from the ancient world informed those analytic questions. So uh, it was a very useful uh, analytic experience and one that uh, was very challenging at the same time. Andrew, let's talk a little more broadly about those, those patterns and precedents. Shortly after your retirement in 2019, the CIA's Center for the Study of Intelligence Publish your book, A Middle East Prime for New Thinking, Insights and Policy Options from the Ancient World. Can you talk about how the region, you kind of broadly talk about how the region has changed since September 11th, since the U.S. invasion of Iraq and since the Arab Spring, you know, uh, you know, relatively uh, concisely, and then talk about how maybe our old analytical uh, models and tools are, are less relevant or less useful than they were? Sure. Um, I think to, to begin the discussion, it's helpful to imagine you're, uh, you're looking in a rearview mirror, first of all. You need to see where you've been analytically and where you've been strategically in the region. Um, for the United States, in, in after the Second World War, um, we essentially had uh, um, a reliance, if you will, on the palace, whether it be a secular Arab nationalist regime palace or a traditional monarchy regime palace to to uh, handle the the complex societal conditions and trends that were um, in each of the states of the region. Um, we had also um, a general sort of modernization theory that uh, in the Cold War we were promoting um, uh, democratic and liberal ideas of governance and economic growth. And these, these models were important to us uh, for conceptualizing the region. Um, the governance then was largely um, of our own conceptualization, and the governance was in reality owned and operated by palaces uh, with whom we maintained our links, but didn't really get into the nitty gritty of what was going on underneath in the societies at large. This uh, way of looking at the region really began to, to become unsustainable and, and, and frail, if you will, first beginning with the Lebanese uh, civil war outbreak in 75, then the Iranian revolution in 1979, uh, where to the great surprise of, of, of secular theorists, a religious movement was able to overthrow a monarchy and uh, much to the chagrin of our you know, post-Enlightenment and post-Westphalian norms, was able to uh, seize power and displace the strategic ally, the Shah, in the region. Um, then, uh, after, 1970, after the 1979 revolution, we, we continue to hold Lebanon and Iran as outliers and 
continue to view things um, through a governance model that we um, held in our own theories, if you will, in the West. Um, but the real um, death knell for, for thinking like this began with the um, first 9-11, which showed that, that religion could act uh, in the name of religion, groups could act asymmetrically against the United States. And secondly, um, the Arab Spring, which exposed the failure of what was essentially a secular Arab nationalist and ultimately European origin idea of governance uh, in this region. So governance failed, and uh, at the same time governments failing, uh, the, the system of states in the region began to change from the bipolar Cold War framework that had dominated uh, you know, just think of, of, of Ataturk's Turkey moving into the orbit of, of NATO and now compare that with Turkey today as, a, as an assertive regional power, uh, increasingly independent of the West. Um, we, 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 we lost a, a bipolar framework, a brief period in the 90s of U.S. supremacy, but then the emergence of uh, failed states, uh, uh, the emergence of, a mo uh, of new regional and assertive powers, a much more multipolar framework. So those are, the re those are the ways that the region has changed in governance and in the system of the states of the Middle East. The patterns and precedents of the ancient world, I contend, are relevant to both these governance challenges and to the changes in the state system. Um, we first need to, to be able to think in this fluid environment about states and their strategic intent. And in an era of frayed borders and failed political systems, looking back to models of identity and geographic scope that, that earlier civilizations had can sometimes give you insights into how contemporary leaders frame their ambitions and frame their entitlements to power in the region. Um, we also get some help looking politically at this, this delicate moment of transition. If we look to particularly the Greek experience in ancient Greece, we find uh, that, that politics actually involves uh, coming up with patterns of governance that draw on past events, present conditions, and have future aspirations. This is very true of the Greek political development. It's also relevant for considering Arab political development now. It'll have a prior uh, footprint, it'll have contemporary demands, and also have aspirations for the future. So thinking across time is useful, and we learn that from the ancient world. We also learn from the ancient world that aggregating um, different groups into, into larger units, political parties, if you will, um, can be a helpful way of undermining sort of uh, tribal, feudal, and clan-based loyalties. When you start to, to, to build groupings that transcend these, these primordial allegiances, you build the beginnings of, of political activity and compromise. And of course, the last insight is from uh, the Greek experience also, that the rule of law has to be absolutely essential, and, and, and unless there must be primacy of the rule of law. So you've got um, thinking about politics across time, you've got um, aggregating interests that transcend primordial allegiances, and you have the ancient world teaching also about the primacy of law. And those are, those are critical um, governance insights. On the international peace and religion too, the salience of religion in governance is also something the ancient world teaches as a pattern in the Middle East. On the system-wide, um, we need, to, we need to be able to understand the move from this bipolar and briefly unipolar uh, regional security framework uh, to a multipolar one. And that pattern of moving from unipolar dominance to multipolar competition and fragmentation is a pattern that is very clearly demonstrated in the ancient world. 
um, notably the end of the Roman Empire, which gives us little insights to how um, the breakup of Rome actually ended up in many of the constituent elements that we see today, a Western part of regional influence, um, a, a Southern Arab tier, an Anatolian plateau um, that now is Turkic. Uh, on the outside of that system, we also learn that Iran exerted its influence, um, and that continues to be a pattern today. So in those ways, um, we have this transition, and we have insights that can come uh, from the patterns and precedents of the ancient world to help inform our analytic thinking, not deterministically, but to help us uh, think critically about these governance challenges and systemic challenges for the region. Andrew, you've described the Middle East as a contested region. Uh, can we take that sort of in turn and first look internally? You, you touched on this a little bit just now, but the, uh, the internal struggle within a lot of these states, especially Arab states, and the future of these secular nationalist republics, is there any, any reason to have any uh, optimism about some of these countries. I guess you know Egypt would be one that's that's kind of uh, uppermost in, in importance, despite its kind of step back from leadership in the Arab world recently. But how, what do you what do you think is 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 the prognosis going forward for these remaining secular Arab nationalist republics and uh, the governance struggles across the region more broadly? We still are in a period uh, where the failure of the secular Arab nationalist regimes that were largely responsible for the post-Ottoman order in the 20th century uh, for much of it, along with traditional monarchies. Um, that failure has left us essentially with uh, sub-state actors uh, in many places competing for uh, the control of central state of power and authority. Uh, we have the disregard in a de facto sense of borders, even as the de jure borders continue to hold. But most importantly, we had the failure of this whole um, sort of secular nationalist ideal of governance that was supposed to transcend all of these allegiances, but actually resulted in sort of clan-based and authoritarian rules uh, that, that was consolidated in various ways and ultimately in the Arab Spring collapsed. Where we go with this, I think um, uh, you have to view this uh, optimistically, perhaps, as a moment of, of creative destruction is the best you can think of right now. There isn't any uh, consensus about what new state borders would be like, and there certainly isn't any power in the region willing to impose new state borders. So we're living with the de jure borders, but we're living with a de facto disregard for them. Um, one way to think about um, where this could be headed is if you look at the conflict zones in places like uh, Yemen, Syria, and Libya, those failed secular Arab nationalist republics, you'll see that the, the, the combatants divide along underlying strategic geographic patterns, whether it's the, um, the highlands in Yemen and, and the lowlands, whether it's the um, eastern Mediterranean littoral in Syria compared to the upper Tigris Euphrates Basin or the Jazeera. Um, you, 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 you will see, you will see, or in Iraq, you will see uh, the divisions between um, Kurds, Shia, and Sunni geographically that that are longstanding and form actually uh, mirror images of, of the Ottoman era vilayets that used to to rule in this area. Um, so you you have um, one way to think about these failed areas is to look at underlying geographic patterns, see the combatants dispersed along them, and ask, well, how will the political future deal with these realities? The political future is going to have to deal with, if you really like Yemen's borders, you're going to have to figure out how to put um, the lowlands and the highlands together in, in a stable state. If you really like to keep Syria's borders, you're going to have to figure out how the, the Jazeera, the upper Tigris-Euphrates basins in the eastern Mediterranean littoral, 
um, are able to, to find uh, a common citizenship, if you will, in, in, in a Syrian state, and similarly with, with Iraq in its Kurdish Sunni and Shia areas. This is all, um, again, brings us back to the need for uh, the consolidation of, of groups and parties that can aggregate interests beyond uh, just primordial allegiances. You need to have people putting citizenship first. The Arab Human Development Report uh, in its first iteration in 2002 was very clear about the, the need for a citizenship ideal to be restored um, that is uh, that is emblematic of allegiance across primordial state, uh, primordial clan and tribal loyalties and, and puts the state and citizenship in the state above that. So that's the challenge and thinking about that, that challenge and also thinking about the geographic challenge of not very natural borders being still existing, uh, finding a way to come up with a political system that can um, in a um, centrif cent um, you know, centripetal way, bring bring those otherwise centrifugal forces, bring them in in coherence into um, a state. That's going to be the political challenge. Well, thank you, uh, Andrew, for that. I um, I'm struck by this whole argument. You've given some speeches with this. You've uh, you wrote a piece in Humanitas uh, in 2020. Uh, Humanitas is the scholarly journal of the Center for the Study of Statesmanship. Um, and in that piece and in what you've been saying today uh, and elsewhere, you, you point to these ancient patterns. Why go back all the way to the ancient world? I mean, why not look at the region starting with the rise of Islam, for example? Why go back to the Roman Empire or even before that? What kind of uh, drove you to look that far back in the past? Uh, I, I get that question. I appreciate it. It's uh, it, it's certainly a reasonable uh, question because some some would argue that that using uh, ancient uh, patterns and precedents really isn't appropriate for a region that is no longer ancient. That, that you know we now have a Suez Canal. We now have uh, ballistic missiles that cross borders. We now have uh, deep water navies. Uh, and what, many of the conditions of the region have changed. I think the answer is that the regional leaders themselves um, show the salience of these ancient patterns and therefore draw our analytic attention to them. Um, when, for example, President Erdogan of Turkey assembles in costume, no less, leaders from all throughout history from the Turkish steppe who represent Turkish nationalism and greets a visiting Palestinian president with these costumed steppe leaders, you wonder what's in his thinking. When um, Hosni Mubarak in 2002 opens up the Library of Alexandria uh, to, to recreate an ancient library and therefore signal a link to the West, you wonder what's going on in his head. When Iranians start pressing for the celebration of the Achaemenid dynasty's uh, main uh, leader, Cyrus the Great, uh, to have his birthday recognized, um, you, you wonder you wonder what they're what they're thinking when ISIS establishes a caliphate um, uh, and, and and establishes their own identity in uh, in medieval Islamic identity um, you again see the salience uh, uh, when the Khorasan group uh, uh, extremist Al Qaeda like group be, uh, asserts itself you wonder why why is Khorasan uh, mentioned well it's a region in in the uh, uh, west of uh, Afghanistan and the east part of Iran, uh, in which the revolt of Abbasids against Umayyad rule first began. And you begin to understand how that template is salient for uh, an extremist group today. So it's really in the region's own leadership 
that you see the echoes and the salience of this um, that compels us to, to not replace our analytic methods of modern tools, but to supplement them, I would argue. Andrew, pulling back a little bit, the Middle East is a contested region. Can you speak about the external actors? You know, there's been obviously a lot of uh, news recently and a lot of attention, maybe some fear about the growing commercial relationship between China and Iran, and obviously there's, there's uh, a military a security component to that as well. Russia has, has, I think, benefited in a lot of ways from, uh, from developments in the region, from U.S. missteps as well, and has, has made itself uh, more, far more of a player than it was in the, in the first 20-plus years after the end of the Cold War and has kind of reasserted itself in the region uh, and, and has managed to balance pr- pretty much all actors. Can you speak about kind of the great powers, uh, the, you know, great powers and superpowers that, that are in the region, the U.S. included? Uh, yes, I think uh, what I would say about, uh, generally speaking, about China and Russia in this uh, region is that uh, the main systemic sort of analytic framework for, for Middle Eastern state analysis, I think if you look at it systemically, tends to be what's going on in the Mediterranean, European, Western area, what's going on in the Anatolian Plateau, and then what's the Arab Southern tier. Again, these are the three sort of building blocks that have been with us for centuries. Um, and Iran has been knocking at the door of that uh, and playing into all of those. Now, that's been the traditional uh, and standard way of looking at this. But there is, from time to time in this region, um, often consequential and significant intervention from the steppe itself into, into this region. And I would liken both Russia and China's, uh, in the highest strategic analysis here, I would liken both of their interests in the region uh, as following a pattern of where the steppe, uh, whether it was Scythians recorded by Herodotus, Mongols sacking Baghdad in the 13th century, um, or, or um, you know, more recent um, uh, Russian influences of the 19th century in the region, you will see the, the movement of the steppe powers into, into uh, the Middle East, potentially with significant consequences, the Mongols being the most significant. So with that said, for context, I think that um, take a look at Iran's way that Iran would see this right now. Iran has this delicate um, uh, strategic game where it has to uh, maintain revolutionary status and credentials and be a dissenter, if you will, from uh, the post-Ottoman order for the region and against the United States. Uh, at the same time, it needs to sort of find a way into uh, global economic relations and membership in the international community. And I think the Chinese uh, Belt Road Initiative that's moving into the region offers a potential way for Iran to sort of reconcile these these challenging um, strategic uh, uh, tensions for it at once remaining revolutionary uh, and not compromising on that and at the same time finding a way into global trade and commerce and uh, this deal that's been signed recently could be an example of that. I should just also mention that the Iranian-Chinese relationship is, uh, it's an ancient one too. Uh, the Abbasids were of course an Arab power, but they were, they were heavily Persianized and there were many Persian forces that actually fought the Chinese in the 8th century uh, for control of influence in Central Asia and the Arab-Persian combined armies uh, won in that battle. So that these are these are peoples that actually have, um, it's hard for us in the United States often to think of this part of the Middle East, but the Middle, P- Middle East has powers that contest each other on the Central Asian uh, field, and um, Iran and China 
uh, have an ancient relationship, and it has to do with the reaches of the uh, ancient Persian uh, and the Persianate civilization, and uh, with the reaches of Chinese Tang Chinese civilization. So this is there's a deep history here, but right now what's happening I think is um, a little uh, release, if you will, of pressure for the Iranians on this conundrum of being in and out at the same time of of uh, what is still a Western-driven world order. Yeah, speaking of those those geographic continuities you've brought up, and and as you said, some of these relationships, especially trading relationships that that go back not not just centuries but millennia, uh, to you know we had this this kind of scare and this wake up call with the, with the temporary closure of the Suez Canal uh, over the last couple of weeks, and now obviously reopened. But how much does the Middle East still matter as uh, as a geographic crossing point and as a trading route, uh, both both by sea and by land? I think of you know China's Links in the region, obviously choke, choke points um, like the Bab al-Mandeb Mandeb and the uh, and Strait of Hormuz, obviously. How, how many of these things are, are as salient as they were in the ancient world or even more so? Or some of that receded in era of globalization, container ships and everything else? Well, I think um, to be sure, you're absolutely right, Gil, that there, there was a heyday of uh, prior to the Suez Canal, and prior to the rise of, of, of global maritime uh, European uh, preeminence uh, and now U.S. naval preeminence, prior to all of that, the terrestrial uh, entrepot of the Middle East was was absolutely critical, uh, and it, it weighted the region with great strategic importance. And um, one could argue that that the decline of the region's importance that's been going on for centuries, arguably, uh, has to do with uh, the end of that sort of terrestrial entrepot status. Um, what I would add, though, is that in an era of globalization, nonetheless, the region sits astride. It's really the junction point of the African continent, the European continent, and the Asian continent. And as we saw with the collapse of Syria and the eruption of civil war and the migration of hundreds of thousands uh, into Europe, um, there is there really is no way to decouple um, the events in the Middle East from the contiguous regions. Uh, uh, it may be uh, of less economic importance, apart from oil uh, and services. Uh, you could argue that the region is receding as 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 power moves further east uh, in a global sense, uh, you could argue that. But I would still say that um, a region that is at the confluence of three continents and that has this this unusually volatile mix of, of religious and demographic and and governance challenges um, really matters to to the West and matters to the United States still. Um, because of an example being the, the refugee flows that actually had a significant impact, you could argue, on European politics. Um, and uh, so I would argue that, the, that we, still, we still have a, a Middle East to worry about, uh, even if it's not one we want to be in all the time, it's certainly one we have to worry about all the time. Andrew, you spoke briefly earlier about some of the, the major uh, non-Arab powers in the region. Can you talk a little bit about, again, some of the continuities, geographic, strategic, cultural uh, with, with regard to Iran, Turkey, and Israel, uh, you know, all, all cultures that go back uh, millennia in the region and have, have become, I think, probably even more powerful with the, with the move towards a more uh, 
multipolar, probably not even bipolar, but multipolar region. So the the uh, you know the, the changes in, in U.S. policy towards the region, the increasing I think reticence of the United States to to have uh, huge security liabilities in the area. Can you can you talk about Iran, Turkey, and Israel in turn, and and how uh, how their power has waxed or waned waned in the region, and what some of those have those what those continuities can tell us about these three powers? I think that the um, the non-Arab. Uh, strategic locus that you're talking about here of Iran, Turkey, and Israel uh, is part of, first at a basic level, is part of the reassertion of regional powers in this post-Cold War era. And in an era when when there really is, is space, you can see increasingly there is space to operate by these powers that there hadn't been before. And, uh, and, and when trying to understand what their strategic intent is and what their calculus is and how they frame their interests in this more fluid environment, again, some sense of where their national identity and self-perception is rooted in what events and what past is relevant. On Iran's case, for example, um, if you don't like the fact that Iran is in Syria um, or if you don't like the fact that Iran is in Iraq, um, it still is important to remember that the in antiquity, Iran was as far as what is now Bulgaria. It had, it had its presence there. It was in the Eastern Med. Uh, and going back to the Bronze Age, people who've been on the Iranian plateau have always been moving into the Tigris, lower Tigris-Euphrates Basin. Um, so uh, it's important to, to, to think of Iranian aspirations uh, with not just an immediate Persian theocratic state um, framework that is born of the post-79 uh, framework, but one that goes deeper and, and gives insights into uh, how they see themselves in the region. Um, so Iran will have to have to figure out again how to be uh, revolutionary, but still an influential in the region, but still able to participate in in global trade patterns and investment patterns. And the Chinese deal, I think, helps them with that. Uh, Turkey is again a, a modern state that we can get a little bit of insight from the past on Turkey as well. Um, if you you can see Turkey now moving uh, from what had been a secular and Eurocentric orientation, again toward a more Middle Eastern regional focus, and this sort of seesawing of the Anatolian plateau has been going on uh, really since uh, uh, the Iron Age, and it's one that it's a pattern where events in Turkey will shift as needed as strategic focus shifts. Um, from a priority of, of the West to a priority of, of the Middle East. And we're now in that priority of the Middle East. Internally in Turkey, um, like Iran also, there is this question of whether uh, as Turkey becomes more Islamic in its um, society and in its governance, uh, how will it reconcile its antecedent um, identities with uh, Europe? and its nationalism that is European in origin, how will that be reconciled? And how will it be reconciled with a, a demographic of youth that is more individualistic and somewhat attracted to, to the liberal ideals of the West? This happens also to Iran, in, in Iran in a different way, where you have, um, again, uh, more traditional and now revolutionary Islamic uh, form of governance sitting on top of a youthful population that has an information and technology revolution and has allegiances to individualism and, and more liberal ideas that um, are complex and competing, but, cha but challenged both regimes in Turkey and um, in Iran. As for Israel, I think that a big shift 
that we have watched in this region is the, the move from the Eastern Mediterranean as sort of the strategic center where the, of the region's politics, where the peace process, where Arab-Israeli wars were fought in the 20th century. That uh, locus has moved much further east to the Persian Gulf, where we have sort of Iran-Saudi competition and much more sectarian and ethnic rivalries and uh, general move of, of the center of gravity to, to, the, um, to the Gulf. Now, Israel then uh, needs to be seen not as uh, just you know, how will it resolve the territorial nationalism, that ha competing nationalism between Zionism and Palestinian and Arab nationalism. Those those frameworks are less salient now, I would argue, and what's more salient is how to see Israel in the center of a region that is multipolar and competitive and changing, and at the, really Israel, the vortex of this region, that's the way to, that's the way to consider, I think, um, Israel strategically, is how do they sit um, at the crossroads of, of different powers um, of varying capabilities, uh, whether it be uh, a fragmented and violent Syria on one end, uh, and uh, Iran threatening further east, a uh, potential ally or not in Egypt. Um, these, are the, these are the questions that Israel is at the vortex will have to, to sort out, and there are patterns from the ancient world that show Israel has been at the vortex before, and I think that's an interesting way to think about it as opposed to just territorial nationalism. Andrew, let's speak a little more about Iran. Uh, the revolution, you know, now is, is coming up on 42 years old and is, is pretty long in the tooth. Some people even make the the comparison to the kind of the late stage USSR and a, and a gerontocracy and, and, a, and a revolution that had run its course and had little remaining ideological purchase um, on the people in the country or abroad for that matter. Uh, at the same time, you've got a, a robust security state. You've got increasing influence by the the Revolutionary Guards throughout the you know political sector, throughout the economy, and obviously in security decisions. And there's their fears in some in some corners of, of the theocracy being supplanted by uh, either suddenly or, or gradually by more of a, a military dictatorship or military run state uh, de facto or de jure. And, and then I think something that, that you've thought about and written about a lot, the the enduring, uh, you know, the enduring Persian culture of Iran and how that plays, how some of these deeper, much older um, dynamics play in. Uh, and, and sometimes I think we. We, we look at just statistics and look at the, the ethnic breakdown in Iran and, and use that to, to paint a picture that, that favors certain policies or, or certain ideological approaches. Can, can you unpack all of that for a little bit, and especially on that last piece? Right. I think um, uh, it would be a, a too high risk of venture for me or other analysts to predict where the Iranian state is headed in a sort of linear pinpoint predictive fashion. Um, but I will, I will uh, want to suggest that Iran um, is now... Um, has actually has succeeded. I mean, you portray this uh, reasonably, Gil, as a, a state that the revolution may be fatiguing a bit. Uh, true enough, but it's also worth pointing out that this really is the only enduring revolutionary state in the region, um, and it is um, it is still able to claim that success. It also um, is interestingly, I think. Uh, for all of its faults and its authoritarianism and for all the things the United States doesn't like about Iran, it still represents an interesting uh, fusion of uh, uh, Republican in the sense of anti-monarchical and Western ideas and even some residual nationalism with the traditional sort of uh, uh, Islamic, in this case Shiite, uh, 
governance ideas, Valeta uh, Faki, for example, or supreme rule of the Juris Consult. Um, it is it is a curious reality that the state that is uh, sees itself as so revolutionary is the Jumhuriya Islami, the Islamic Republic, and it is um, its very name is it's a it's a Roman name, it's a republic, Reis Publica. It is a it is curiously this hybrid, and and I think what's interesting about Iran's uh, hybrid status, if it doesn't descend into an authoritarian police state and and simply morph into just another uh, autocracy, that there lies within the, the, the sophisticated Persian culture the ability to consider um, political experimentation and political change and a blending of, of some of the universal Western institutional political ideas with the indigenous Islamic uh, ideas. And I think that, the, that in Shia Islam in particular, this is possible. And uh, so I... I I would um, I would never underestimate the the sophistication of of the Persian sort of political thinking um, and not rule it out entirely as uh, as something that could um, eventually seed some more positive uh, at another date a more positive political trajectory for the region as a whole wherein ideas of modernity and tradition are meeting and have to be reconciled in a stable politics. Uh, Iran may well fail at that, and we don't want to be too optimistic, but it's certainly um, worth considering, I think. Andrew, if we can shift gears a little bit, I'd like to talk more broadly about your, uh, your academic background and, and your, your training and, and especially some of these currents that run through your book. Obviously, you have a deep background in the humanities and languages uh, and in, in antiquity. How do you how, how do you think that prepared you for a job or complemented your your uh, your training for to be an analyst to be an intelligence analyst and be, to be an analyst of, of geopolitics? How would you look at that both in your own career and increasingly as we're in a, a world that uh, pays so much deference to data and tries to tries to put a number on so many things and and, and is resistant to things we we can't quantify. Uh, how do you view that going forward, especially in the intelligence? Well, community? let me just start with a, a narrow observation that when I my undergraduate degree was in the comparative study of religion, and when I found myself responsible for thinking critically and writing critically about the Islamic world, it was very useful to have sort of a University of Chicago sanctioned vocabulary for uh, discussing uh, religious attachments, beliefs, and doing them in a more anthropological way. I think that was just good preparation for dealing with uh, a topic where. I think in the West, in the post-Enlightenment, as I like to say, post-Westphalian West, religion is hard to talk about. So having that having that formal preparation was, in that narrow sense, for me, useful. Um, I think more broadly, the um, those who are trained in, still in humanities and in liberal areas of the academy uh, can supplement in important ways the trend towards specialization in disciplines and the special the, the move toward data science even. Um, and they can do this in a couple of ways. First, in in being able to to come up with strategic analytic frameworks. Um, I think that to think across disciplines and to think uh, with the perspectives of others in in who are specialists in in an integrated fashion is sometimes necessary for the hardest analytic problems. 
they're usually the problems that are most difficult in emerging societies um, do not um, find analytic explanation and resolution in a single discipline. And those who have liberal training and are read broadly, particularly in history, I think can, can bring to the table um, an ability to broker in, in an integrative way um, strategic analytic insights. Uh, strategy essentially comes from the, the Greek word for general, strategos, and his job was to integrate the, you know, heavy cavalry, heavy infantry, cavalry, light infantry into a combined arms campaign. A strategic analyst similarly has to, to bring, you know, political analysis, economic analysis, leadership analysis, uh, military analysis, all of that has to come into a sort of a combined strategic analytic effort. And that's where broad training, I think, can come in handy. Um, in particular, though, on the data science question, um, it's very tempting, um, I think, uh, to look at data science uh, as uh, a field that was going to provide new insights by exposing correlations um, and insights uh, about societies by looking at large data sets about them. Um, still, for, for the best uh, sort of data analytic efforts to succeed, the best algorithmic uh, uh, programming to, to be written, you still have to have uh, a sense of what it is you're trying to understand, and you have to have an ability to frame that quest. And I think that the, the, the even the humanities-based generalist uh, can partner with the data science uh, specialist in articulating uh, the focus of these algorithms that we increasingly need to rely on. So, um, you know, narrow focus for me as a comparative religion major paid off on talking about religion. General payoff for strategic analysis and another applied approach for data analysis all i think justify um, uh, the continued um, preparation of students in these areas of, of humanities and liberal academic pursuits andrew thanks so much this has been a real pleasure i'd like to wrap up with just two two final short questions for you first of all i'd, I'd recommend your book wholeheartedly it's a a great, concise uh, way to, to think about the region anew and, as you said, to tap into some older tools. Um, can you tell people where to find your book, and can you also tell us what you're working on next? Uh, thank you very much, uh, Gil. Uh, the book uh, uh, is available as uh, Middle East Prime for New Thinking, Insights and Policy Options from the Ancient World, as you said. Uh, it's available um, at the Center for the Study of Intelligence website as a downloadable PDF, um, which is found under CIA.gov. So the Center for the Study of Intelligence. Uh, and the uh, book is also available in hard copy from the uh, government printing office or publishing office. And that is um, available, um, I think you have to order that on their website. So, And then what you're working on now? Oh, thank you, yes. Um, well, I'm beginning to, to look at uh, what a new US strategy in the Middle East might entail and uh, that will involve uh, looking at, as we have in this discussion, uh, why an old strategy for a previous time may lo no longer apply, and what ways to think about this region uh, could be more useful as we deal with uh, the governance challenges and the multipolarity uh, in the system that we have been discussing. And I'd like to bring that together from a more US perspective. Andrew, one more question before you go. We've been speaking about the sources of division and conflict in the Middle East, but what about the possibilities for engagement or cosmopolitanism? Uh, thank you for uh, that question, Matt, because um, I actually addressed that in the book, and it's an oversight on my part not to have mentioned that. Um, the, um, 
the the good news on that is that they're really in a, throughout history in this region, the strategic competitors have interestingly on a parallel track maintained uh, cultural and knowledge exchange corridors um, that have occurred. The most obvious one was. Uh, you know, from Byzantium, before the Islamic conquest, Byzantium scholars brought into uh, the Persian world all kinds of Greek uh, uh, texts, and those texts eventually found their way into the Arab court in Baghdad, and then back eventually uh, through Andalusian Spain into Western Europe. Uh, and there were, there were exchanges uh, of knowledge in pre-Islamic uh, uh, Persia, uh, that uh, suggests that people will, uh, in this region, deal with each other on, on knowledge exchange and cultural exchange in certain corridors, even as they're competing. And I think that that represents an interesting opportunity, perhaps, for some track two diplomacy of some kinds. Um, you know, why not, have, uh, why not have scholars begin to reconvene and uh, talk about perhaps the reception of Aristotle in the region and how uh, Persian polymaths and Arab polymaths added to that uh, corpus and how that affected um, a shared uh, patrimony of knowledge. Uh, so there, there are ways to, to come in and sort of the, 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 the soft uh, uh, back door, if you will, to some of these hard, hard competitions uh, through knowledge exchange for which there is, there is a pattern and a precedent. Yes, indeed. We've been speaking with Andrew Gilmore, author of A Middle East Prime for New Thinking, and Gil Barndoller, a fellow with the Center for the Study of Statesmanship. This has been an episode of Encounters, a podcast of the Center for the Study of Statesmanship at the Catholic University of America. Encounters is available on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, and at our website, css.cua.edu. Until next time.